This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any uniform services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. everyone. We're your hosts, Alyssa and Gary. Welcome to the Homeland Hero Salute, a podcast sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. Brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by Dairy Cam. Learn more about us and our mission by following the Homeland Hero Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Hero Salute. This is your host, Alyssa. And this is Gary. We're joined again by Dan Jarvis, founder and president of the 220 nonprofit, um, which helps veterans, and Dr. Janelle Royster. How are you folks today? Doing great. Thanks for having us back. Doing great. Thank you. Awesome. I'm glad to have you back on as well. Um, your story and, and both of your stories and where you've come from and where you are today are really profound, inspiring stories, I think, and the way that you're helping other veterans and people in the mental health sector and trying to get people um, to a better space, I think is really inspiring as well. And I'm happy to talk to you. And in this episode, we're going to dive into talking about the actual process that you both utilize when you're helping others. Um, for part one of kind of where Dan and Janelle have both come from, where they, how they served and what their experiences were like, you can uh, listen to part one and, um, it explains a little bit about what we're going to be talking about even more today. Awesome. So let me just, if you don't mind, I'm going to just jump in here real quick. Yeah. Um, when I, when I formed 220, uh, I did it because I totally fell through the VA cracks and I, you know, I looked at myself as a fairly educated guy. I mean, I was a senior non-commissioned officer in the army, so I know how to maneuver and navigate through the system. And I just got to wondering if I fell through the cracks, how many other people are falling through the cracks? And that's when I realized I wanted to create an organization that would stand in the gap and provide alternative treatments for veterans outside of the VA and try to find those veterans who aren't engaging with the VA and who don't, who aren't interested in the VA services. So we, that's basically how we started. And, and if you're not familiar, the, the number of suicides in the veteran space on average is 2022 a day, it's probably considerably higher than that, especially with, with this year of COVID, a lot more isolation. But our goal is to be that zero, you know, to go from the 22 a day to zero. So we're not moving away from the 22, we're moving towards the goal of zero. And PTSD is probably one of the leading causes of suicide. Um, and I, and I, sh I shared my story in the last episode. It's not that I wanted to die. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And when you, if you don't understand PTSD, I'll explain it to you like this. If you've ever had a moment in your life where you felt like your life was in danger, like you might've been, might've died or been killed, could it be a car crash, could be a, a robbery, whatever. In that moment, when you feel like this is it, all right, PTSD is that feeling every day, every hour, every minute. All right. There's no there's very little rest from that feeling. So when those emotions are trapped in the amygdala, the fight or flight part of your brain and you don't process it, 
um, I call that the thumb drive. You have easy access to that emotion and that memory, that feeling. So that's why we have nightmares. That's why we have intrusive thoughts. Some people have flashbacks. I even had some people say that they saw the ghost of a dead person. But the reality is their brain was has literally been hijacked. So they have those old memories that constantly pop up. And, you know, the processes that we do, the first one is the tactical resiliency process. Uh, is it okay if I just go ahead and explain how we set it up? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the very first thing you want to do is run, have the person run a neutral event. So what we'll do is take an event like brushing your teeth or pouring a cup of coffee in the morning, and they create a picture, a starting point for that event. So if it's brushing your teeth, it's grabbing your toothbrush. So you have them make a mental picture in their head of them grabbing that toothbrush. And then you have them drain the color out of it, make it black and white. And then what are you doing when you're done? Is it walking out of the bathroom door, make a mental picture of that, and then drain the color and make it black and white. And when you think of a black and white movie, what comes to mind? Old movie, right? Mm -hmm. So subconsciously, the brain is automatically realizing, okay, there was a start to the event. There was an end to the event, black and white. It's an old event. So we do this practice movie first. We make sure that they can watch themselves, what we call disassociated or separated, kind of like that ghost of Christmas past where you, you sit down on your couch, you put the image of the tooth, toothbrush on the TV in the black and white, and then you float out of your body. And then you just look at yourself back on the couch. And what that's doing is it's layering out the emotions. And we start with a neutral memory because we don't want them ever to fully go into the event. So, because if we started off with a traumatic event, they might automatically go into watching the trauma and we don't want that. So we do this practice movie. Can you see yourself disassociated? Can you watch the movie for 30 to 45 seconds? And then can you do a rewind from the end of the movie to the beginning in one and a half to two seconds? where it transitions from black and white to color. And once we determine they can do those visual formats, running the trauma event is the same process. All you're doing is changing your bookends and inserting the traumatic event, all right? So first thing we do is we tell them to think about the traumatic event, all right? Think about it as it really happened. And if we're able to see them, if we see them trigger or we call a sympathetic arousal, we stop them, all right? And, and if we don't see it, because some people are very comfortable telling their story because maybe they've done exposure therapy for so long, we'll ask them, hey, when you feel a difference, you let me know. Because the moment they trigger or have that sympathetic arousal, that's it. You want to get them out of that moment, reground them, talk about, you know, Tom Brady playing for the box now, whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> get them totally outside of the conversation. And then once they're comfortable and they're, they're, they're regrounded, then you have them take that first picture of what they were doing before they were traumatized when they were safe. And you take that black and white image and then you make a black and white image after the traumatic event where they were relatively safe. And then you sit them down in their, their living room or on their bed, watching their phone, wherever they watch their video content. And then you have them put that image up on the TV. Right. And then they separate, they disassociate from their body and they stand in a place. They can't see the TV, but they can only see themselves on a couch. And then once you get them to be able to do that comfortably, uh, because a lot of people, when they start watching themselves, watch the trauma, they get antsy. And we're like, well, what were you doing on the couch? Well, he knew what was coming. He was antsy, he was excited, or he was crying or he was sad or, or, or just bothered by it. And you could do all kinds of things when you get to this point. It's like, okay, well, the cool thing is you're, you're the director of this new movie. You're in control. Why don't you take the remote control and turn the TV off? 
where there's no picture, no volume, but the DVD is playing in the background. And what you're doing is you're all you're doing is you're keeping the conscious brain or we call the weak brain, which is that five to 10% of your brain power. We're keeping it occupied so that the subconscious brain was, is literally watching the movie from beginning to end. You don't realize it, but the unconscious brain is watching it repetitively. And when you're comfortable disassociated and when they're comfortable over there watching the movie, then you go in and do the rewind and you have them reassociate into the end. You're still in black and white after the trauma is over, but you're safe. And then you walk it backwards rapidly, one and a half to two seconds, and then you end in color. And what that's doing is that's telling your amygdala, time out, wait a minute, we're actually ending on a positive before everything. We've unraveled all the, the trauma. And that's when the release happens. That's when the amygdala says, it's not for this purpose. And it's it's you're tricking the brain to separate the emotions from the memory. Mm-hmm. And then one goes to one part of the brain, one goes to the other. And then once you get to that point, you, you gauge how comfortable they are. And then you have them think about the event again after they did the rewind a few times and have them put a number to the stress. And majority of them will drop to two or three or one, sometimes even zero on the rewind. And then once you get to that three or below, you have a rescript, a new ending, because what you're dealing with is an emotional state. It's not the event that's the problem. It's the emotion that attaches to the event. So you can see the event all day long. That may not bother you, but it's the feelings attached to it that bother us. So when you get that feeling down to a three, two, or a one, or a zero, then all you're doing is having them maybe reframing or rescripting an alternate ending, or you know what? Think about your last family vacation where everybody was having a really good time, and as they focus on the new emotions of the new memory, that new emotional state will imprint over the old memory. So then, when you think about it, you've processed the trauma, you've split the that fear, terror, and helplessness out. You've now thought about a new positive emotion, and when you think about the traumatic event at that point. Now you're feeling the alternate ending. You're feeling um, the family vacation emotion. You're not feeling that fear, terror, helplessness. And then you have a, re- a rest cycle between that where they go to sleep. And we're, we're seeing people who have literally not slept for a decade clear the, the trauma, reconsolidate the memories. And now all of a sudden they're sleeping seven or eight hours where they might have only been sleeping one, two, three hours. So that sleep restoration is huge in getting that veteran or that person with PTS back onto to healthier footing because now their body's able to recover. Uh, their immune system gets better. Their cortisol levels drop back to normal. They don't have um, those emotions necessarily associated with it anymore. And then typically at that point, we try to find what negative emotions they're being because if it's not a fear, terror, helplessness, it's not typically a trauma response. Somebody might have sadness or anger associated with it. And then we just go into the emotions management process or the EMP. And we go back, we have them go back and identify the first time in their life they can feel that emotion. Mm-hmm. And the majority of them will go back within the first seven years. So something happened when they were five that they felt angry about. And then what we do is we take them over that event, kind of that bird's eye view looking down and we separate it. We have them float up higher into the air until that event becomes just a little dot and they don't have the feelings associated with it. And then we have them reframe the event with their current level of understanding. So like, you know, as a 40 year old, you know, what would you tell your five-year-old self that would allow you to learn from an event, but let the emotion go? Uh, I'll give you one example. I, I worked with a Vietnam vet 
And we started to clear his, his PTS with a TRP and we were bookending his deployment, which was seven months and flight over and the hospital in Japan when he woke up, that was his bookends, but he had such a grief response. Uh, one of his, his best friend literally that he joined the army with died in his arms in 1969 in the jungles of Vietnam. So he had such a visceral, visceral grief response. So we stopped the TRP and then we went over that event and we floated above and floated up high enough. So he didn't feel the grief anymore. And then we reframed it. And all I had to do with him was I said, okay, Andy, we're changing the rules. We're changing the laws of physics. You're now dying in your best friend's arms, right? Do you want him to be sad, depressed, and grief-stricken for the rest of his life? And Andy was like, no way. I would want him to be happy and be healthy and move on and have a great life. And then I said, what makes you think he expects anything less out of you? And his eyes got really big. And he said, I've never thought of that. And it was just that little shift in thinking that allowed his subconscious to release the grief. And then he processed it and he came back through his timeline. And now um, a grief reaction he's had every, you know, pretty much weekly since 1969, he no longer feels that anymore. So it, it it's like a pattern interrupt to the subconscious behavior. So that's kind of the difference between the two processes. So they kind of really work hand in hand. A lot of times when you clear um, trauma, you'll get a grief response. That's a biological response. The body has been holding stuff in for so long. You just get that sad cry feeling. And we always encourage, Hey, look, just dump it, let it go. You know, this whole suck it up mindset is what's killing us, you know, let it out. Or if we can reframe it uh, with the EFP, we'll reframe it where they, they pretty much process it. So that's, yeah, that's incredible. Pretty, pretty cool. I've so I've been having recent conversations. Um, I personally go to therapy. It's something that, you know, my 2020 plan was to um, work on my mental health um, and, and discover why I think and feel and have the anxieties that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've, I have anxiety and it's something that, you know, it took me 27 years to get diagnosed with general um, anxiety disorder. And, and it's something that I've always dealt with. And now it's, you know, I'm, I'm finally realizing Okay, this is what I have, but it's a convert the the conversation I've been having recently with several different people in my life have been this idea of changing the way you think. Yes, is extremely p- profound, and and things I see, I follow a lot of different things on social media in regards to, um, you know, normalizing therapy, taking away the stigma, um, taking away the stigma of people having anxieties, et cetera. Um, even body image, um, you know, taking away stigmas around that, um, being a young female, it's something that a lot of females and even males can, can really relate to. But this idea of changing the way you think I saw something recently that was, you know, with anxieties, a lot of people think, what if, what if, what if, what if I fail? What if I get rejected? What if this bad thing happens? you know, the simple act of changing the formula in your brain to go, what if I succeed? What if, you know, I ask someone, you know, silly, but what if I ask someone on a date and they say yes. And how just that little switch is really profound. So to have, you know, having little switches resonate and then hearing from you that this Vietnam vet took him, you know, the vet, the Vietnam war was, 40, 50, almost 50 years ago and, and a little longer, actually. 
and to have him, you know, going 50 years thinking a certain way and for you to say, well, what if the opposite is extremely profound and I think really speaks to what you're doing. Um, And it's something that I think a lot of people, whether you deal with small anxieties or just stress of work and stress of failure or anything like that, just changing the way you think can have profound impacts on your life. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, and sometimes it all it requires is something seriously um, subtle. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a big difference to make a change on a subconscious level because the brain's got something we call the make sense mandate. It's got to make sense of the data that it comes into it. You know, because it's like a computer. We delete and we distort um, all kinds of different data. So, like, you know, for example, one of my board members, his daughter, had panic attacks. She'd had five or six a day since she was five years old. All right. And we got, we did the EMP work and about 20 minutes, we isolated the initial onset of the panic. Uh, Her mother was in a traffic crash and was on medication that could cause seizures. So the mom thought it would be a good idea to practice having a seizure to make sure the kids knew how to react. So the panic was associated with the the mother doing the practice. She was young. She didn't know any better, but her panic was something bad was going to happen to mom or dad. So she's 23 now. And it was just before the onset of COVID. She, she came over and uh, we did some work and we, we found the event and we reframed it with her 23 year old knowledge. And she just changed a little bit of how she looked at that event. And that made sense to her. It made sense on a subconscious level. and she has not had a panic attack since. So I've worked with a firefighter who had panic attacks. Um, I checked in with him last week. We reframed the initial onset of his panic attacks. I said, so how are you doing? How's the panic attacks? His reply was, haven't needed any as needed medication since we did our session. And that was probably four months ago. So just little subtle changes in how you looked at the initial onset. Cause the, the brain is trying to do, it's trying to protect you. That's what the purpose of your brain is. It's, it's to protect you in a function. So it's doing something that it thinks is keeping you safe. When in ra- reality is it's got a severe negative emotion or, uh, or a reaction associated with it. So like, like for anxiety for you, I would try to identify when was your first event. Do you remember your first anxiety attack or about, about time frame? Yeah. How old old were you? Um, I used to have severe panic attacks around the beginning of school. So I would say probably first or second grade, I was six or seven. Right. So that first, that's like I said, most of the people we get to go back to that first seven years of life, because what happens is you're in the, what's called the imprint phase of learning. Mm -hmm. So we absorb everything like a sponge as a child. Yeah. And you can't process, you don't know how to process it. Most kids don't know how to process anxiety or sadness or grief or anger or whatever. So you're just stuck with it. And then that becomes your prevailing subconscious behavior. So anytime an event occurs that's similar, that triggers you, you go into the anxiety attack because your brain wants to protect you, right? So now what you got to do is if you can find that event and just kind of like gaze down as if from above, like like you're looking at it from a drone perspective, can you think of one of those events? Yep. How intense does that feeling get as you think about it? If you were to put a number number to it, zero to 10. I think about maybe a seven or an eight. Okay, seven or eight. So that's pretty high. 
All right, so what I want you to do is you're looking down in the event, I want you to float up higher into the air, but I want you to go high enough that that seven or eight becomes a zero. So in other words, you get smaller and smaller and smaller until you see just a little dot. Um, and, and if you need to, I mean, you can go to the surface of the moon. Uh, one time I went out to the rings of Jupiter. I had one lady went to the outer ring, outer edge of the universe, you know, but if it's that much distance required, just get that down to a zero. Let me know when you're high enough up. Okay. Right. So obviously again, seven or eight years old, you really don't understand how to process anxiety. What, what could you tell yourself at seven or eight that would allow you to learn what you need from that, but let go of the fear and the anxiety associated with it. What would you tell yourself? And we're thinking something that's self um, positive and future based. What would you tell yourself? That it's, you're going to have a happy life. You're going to have a happy life. Good. Anything else? Maybe one day you're going to host a podcast and you're going to thousands and thousands of people with your story. Yeah. Because around that time as well, I think that's that's significant um, because I was having speech issues um, from a young age. And that was about the same time that I was kind of in the, in the middle of it. Right. So with those those two learnings, I want you to do is can you drop on your timeline before your first panic attack? Let me know when you're there. OK. All right. Do you feel that anxiety now or not? No. OK. In a second, don't do it just yet. Move forward on your timeline, but stop right before the first panic attack. And I want you to reframe it with that exact learning that you're going to have a happy life. And then one day you're going to do a podcast that's going to affect and impact thousands and thousands of people and release the emotion and learn what you needed to from that moment. And then move forward and find any other time where you had panic and reframe each of those with those learnings. And then just come back to the present as soon as you're ready. Okay. So uh, what's the temperature up there in New Hampshire? 43 degrees. Ooh, that's cold. <laughs> that's cold. All right, that's just a break state. That's just to kind of get you out of the thought. So can you look back now and do you find that old emotion of anxiety or not? No. Okay. Now go out to a future event that hasn't happened yet because your brain has the ability to imagine. Imagine something that would have caused anxiety in the past and see if the old emotion is there or not. No. Okay. So what that means is you have made subconscious changes on your timeline, all right? So your brain is a computer and we store data in a linear fashion. You couldn't feel the emotion of anxiety before the, the event because it hadn't happened yet, all right? So in this process, you've already agreed to go through the process. So it's almost like a negotiation with somebody mm -hmm. that's willing to let the emotion go. And then you basically reframed that event with these new learnings. And now your brain's got a new tool. So... That's that's the simplicity of the emotions management process. It's just a subtle change in how you view the events. As long as you've identified the initial onset, you can reframe it and change it throughout your entire timeline. And that future pace, if I would have asked you how you would have reacted before we did the EMP, you would have had anxiety in your future. Yeah. And now you don't. So that's the basic premise of it. So I'll, I'd want to follow up with you to make sure we get it all. And if you got any other stuff that you want to work on, there's an open invitation for you. Um, so if you have mental health counselors that are listening to this podcast, yeah, here's our, here's our ask for them. You need to get trained to do this, but here's what we'll do for you as a counselor. And, and if you looked at our study, we had 19 counselors that had trauma. A lot of counselors go into that field because they have trauma. So when we come in and tell people, hey, you know, there's a way to fix that, they look at you like you're crazy. So if you have counselors in your audience, we will clear your trauma for free. 
but then you got to sign up and take the training so that you can bring it to your community. That's what we're going to ask. And where can they find you, Dan? Uh, they can go to our website, www.22zero.org. Um, they can look at our research. There's a, there's a link on our website with the research. And then there's a training link on the very top. They could look down and see when the schedules are and they could sign up that way as well. You know, anyone who's interested in your services, how can they get in touch with you as well? Same thing. They can go to the website and they can just request help on the, on the homepage. They'll send us an email and we'll, we'll connect them with somebody. Now our, our services are pretty expensive for veterans, first responders, family members, active military at $0. So don't, don't use money as a reason not to do it. We don't charge a fee. And for civilians, anyone else dealing with these kind of health issues? Um, what, what we do with the civilians, because it's not in our bylaws for the nonprofit, we, okay. we, we will connect them with somebody like Dr. Royster, and then they've got to work out whatever her fee schedule is. Okay. But, you know, you got to realize there's people that have dealt with PTSD who have been in therapy for years, spending thousands and thousands of dollars and getting nowhere. Mm-hmm. And literally... You know, our study was one to four sessions. We only had one person ask for four sessions. That was mm-hmm. it. Everybody else was one to three. The bulk of them um, were two and three. And then a large swath of them was just one. I think we had like 40% that just required one session. That's incredible. Yeah. I had so, an outpatient. Uh, I went to outpatient therapy with a lady who owned her own private practice. And she charged me my copay was $180. That didn't include my insurance, right? And so at the end of the 52 minutes that it caught, you know, it took me to tell my story. She goes, I don't even know what to do with that. Wow. Guess what? I'm hoping she's listening because I have something for you. (laughs) We we were just out in Montana at a first responder um, trauma seminar. And Nick Davis, who's on my board, did a live demo of the TRP with a, uh, it was a firefighter's spouse. Um, the firefighter had killed himself and she was the one that found him. So the whole audience of police, fire and EMS watched her go through the process and she self-identified at a 12 instead of a 10. So she was pretty high and she was literally um, a one at the end of about 35 minutes. And then we, she had a grief response and then I did the EMP so they could see that process. So she processed the grief and then we, she came back and we did one more session and cleared another trauma and all the rest of her negative emotions. And so her therapist was actually in the audience watching cause she's in, in the critical incident stress management um, organization in Bozeman. So she literally watched us clear her client that she'd been dealing with for a very long time. Oh my gosh. But the good thing about that is she's now going to get trained. She didn't, I mean, no, most, most counselors don't know this exists. And, right. if, and if you tell them it exists, they won't believe you. Sure. But when you see it, you can't unsee it. So I, I have two question, a two part question, I suppose. Um, in the last episode, Janelle, you mentioned there's a neurological and a psychological aspect. What in regards to the different classifications of um, mental health issues and illnesses, et cetera, disorders. What is the difference? Because to me, it's all happening in the head. It's all the same thing. Um, what's the difference between a neurological versus psychological? Oh, I'd love for Dan to answer this. <laughs> right. Psychological is like people who have like, you know, it could be schizophrenic, could be bipolar, it could be borderline personality disorder. When you're when you're dealing with a neurological condition, again, you witness a traumatic event, 
and an emotion fires and that emotion connects to the event. So they stay linked. They're neurologically connected, right? Now, when you're dealing with complex trauma, so maybe you were traumatized at the age of six and you have a trauma reaction and then something happens again at 10. Well, guess what? They neurologically connect. So the brain um, neurons will literally connect from one event to the next. And then a, then a third event happens and then a fifth event and then a seventh event. And then you got this one great big trauma. All of them are connected like a spider web. When you get that big event, like go for that boulder, you clear it, it'll take, it'll wipe out multiple um, events. And then you get that first event. So even with complex PTSD, like decades of PTSD, you clear that first one and that worst one, it'll unravel neurologically all of them. So they'll disconnect. So the emotions will disconnect from each of the traumas. You know, I, I worked with one of my, um, Ryan, my driver from Afghanistan, uh, he became a firefighter and we, he came down over the 4th of July and he's had about four traumatic events he wanted to work on. So I said, well, we're going to go for the big one. All right. I want that big one. Let's forget the little ones. And he did, he worked on the big one and he cleared it. And I said, now go back and think about all the other ones. And he was zeros on all of them. He had no more traumatic reaction. It cleared out the whole, all four of them. Just you know, one big one. When you say traumatic reaction. So this has me thinking I guess, kind of to like put it in like super layman's terms, I guess the neurological, it affects the nervous system. So I know. So I was going to expand on that when Dan was done, because that's, that's kind of brainy, but I'll I'll try and break it down (laughs) if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I know like when I, I've had anxieties that are heightened or panic attacks, I've had panic attacks. Feel it in your body. Yeah. My stomach. Right. Hot, cold. Exactly. During my, my, all, all my education, (laughs) I have learned that brain-based interventions, because the amygdala, which is a little tiny almond or walnut shaped organ that goes behind your brain or right behind your ears on each side of the hemisphere, right? So it's right next to your brainstem. And then we have what's called the 10th cranial nerve that's attached to that. And we also call it a vagus nerve. That's the more layman term for it. Mm -hmm. And that runs down your esophagus, all the way around your stomach, your heart, your liver, your kidneys, you'd be amazed. So they are finding that the more exposure you have to traumatic events, people are actually suffering with um, physiological symptoms. So I know that there is the, the psychologist that I worked with in Chicago actually is, is conducting a study right now on the human traffic survivors in stomach cancer and how they're associated. And her husband is a psychiatrist. And it's interesting when you have anxiety or panic attacks, you feel it in your throat, you feel it in your heart, you feel it in your chest. That's because that vagus nerve is expanding and throbbing simultaneously. So the amygdala is just these little organ. And what it does is all the information filters through there, fight, flight, freeze, or reproduction, right? Mm-hmm. So it it kind of fl- it kind of flows through there. And then what happens is you have an event and you have emotions attached to that event. And that's when it gets stuck in there. And like I said, on the other podcast, you, you have to be able to, the highways are going different places. So when you disconnect by using this process, what happens, like Dan said, 
it separates and then it can filter through and, and take the highway where it belongs. So what happens is the emotions go left to the hippocampal region because it's right next to the brainstem, which is where everything happens. And then the other one goes north up to the cerebellum. And then that's why Dan has these just amazing stories. And he doesn't have very, it's minimal emotion surrounding them because he can talk about his, he can talk about his deployment, which I'm like, wow. You know, when I hear his stories, like he had dinner last night. Yeah. So that's why, but what's really cool And I I think this is my favorite part of this whole process is the fact that once those highways, those neurotransmitters in your brain take the emotions and and make that left on that highway and they go to the hippocampal region of the brain and then the memory of the event itself goes to the cerebellum, they never reconnect. Wow. It doesn't matter if you do a 90 day study, you can do a six month study. We have two clinical psychologists who are, you know, they're going right after the naysayers. They're going after the people that are like, this can't work really. And one of them, which is really cool is because he's not gone through the process, nor has he been trained. So he has this overview, this objectivity that we need in order to do this correctly. And we're working on different populations, what we call different pockets of control groups. I don't really want to get too much in the whole research thing because you can get lost in academia really. (laughs) But the psychological is the emotional state of a person and the neurological is more the physiological stuff, the neurology, like you said, the nerves and that. Can I, let me share a little bit. So when I really knew this was legit, right? For me, my, and Gary can tell you, anniversaries are huge. So for me, the month of August was, was literally a gut punch. Cause when I knew August was coming, I knew that day was coming that we lost Doug. So September, 2018, I go through this process and I neurologically disconnect and I don't have the visceral reaction anymore. Fast forward to the next August. It was on the 21st. I look at my Facebook and I see all these posts for Doug Cordo where I missed the anniversary of his death. So I'm like, holy cow. That to me was profound because before the entire month would have been a gut punch from 2011 all the way to 2018. And I, I missed the entire, it It was no longer a trigger for me. August was no longer a trigger. So I remember texting somebody and they're like, man, I'm sorry, dude, That, that sucks. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. This is a good thing. You know, not, for, I mean, it's not that I forgot. It's just that I no longer had that neurological connection. The emotion was no longer attached to the month of August. So that's kind of a, that in a nutshell. Not to mention it didn't affect his functioning and he wasn't right. suffering from physiological symptoms. So like I said, I worked with um, one of his battle buddies, actually, who was a drill sergeant with him who had severe chest pain. And I worked with him. I did two sessions and he... You know, I, I keep checking on him. It's like, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? And it's been seven months and he's still doing amazing. He's thriving. He's still active duty army. Yep. So one of the things that I'm kind of picking up on it um, is that it's, is it fair to say, and I'm kind of, kind of going to take like a devil's advocate approach to this a little bit, because I think what you're doing is, is incredible. and and I'm obviously super interested in it. And it just, it's fascinating. Um, 
But is it is it fair to say that um, taking the, these traumas and events and dis you're disassociating the emotions with them, correct? You're you're neurologically disconnecting the emotion from the event so that it just becomes a long term memory, a normal memory like it's supposed to. So what is because when you do talk about it, there is and I don't think detachment is the correct word because it feels too negative. Mm-hmm. But there's this almost it's almost like you're talking about a movie when you're talking about your experiences. Like I think of like, this is what I'm, I guess. That's, that's actually a really good um, analogy. Cause that's very, um, it, it, it becomes like a movie. Yeah. It's a real, it's a real event. It happened. It's history, yeah. but it's kind of like you watch that old movie over and over and over again. And the more you watch it, the more desensitized you are to it. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, I keep thinking about the movie Saving Private Ryan is one of the the biggest blockbusters that has ever happened. And it's one of the movies that veterans go into and they come out and say, that's what it like. It's one of the blanking on the word, but um, it's the closest thing to real combat that a lot of veterans have seen. That was one of the biggest yeah. um, kind of comments about the movie when it came out and as a civilian who's never been in a situation like war or conflict like that, or, you know, in a shooting or anything like that to watch it, it's, you know, I can empathize, I can sympathize with what they're going through to a certain degree, but not to the point that if a veteran who's, you know, you've seen war, Janelle, I don't um, know if you've been deployed, but Gary seen war. Yeah, I did one tour that I'm all set. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you've all, you know, you've had this, you've been in that experience as a civilian kind of looking on it. I have a completely different perspective of it and add the fact that it happened 70, 80 years before I was even alive or even thought of, um, you know, I can talk about that movie in, in kind of like a detachment the detached desensitized way of this is what happened. And that's kind of how Dan, you're talking about it, which is really fascinating. And I think to what you can do and how you can remove certain feelings. So my question here is what are the psychological effects of removing emotion from traumas and from memory, these memories, because in a way you know, you want to, it's human to feel. Right. And you don't want to necessarily take that away. You don't want to, because I I don't think you you feel numb. Well, the numb is what comes when you have trauma. You kind of get that numb, detached feeling. Yeah. Trauma is, for PTSD, it's fear, terror, and helplessness. And it's to a level that is extremely intense. All right. So what the process is doing is it's taking that extreme, intense fear, terror and helplessness, which is debilitating a lot of people. It's what's preventing people from leaving their houses. It's what's preventing people from driving cars. It's what's preventing people from watching and observing fireworks because they get that immediate trauma response when they're exposed to those triggers. So what we're able to do is just disconnect those triggers and disconnect the extreme negative emotion, because, I mean, real emotion isn't going to go away like sadness there is a healthy amount of sadness. There's a real, it's a real human emotion. It's what makes us different from the rest of the species on the planet. Um, Mm -hmm. So we're not getting rid of all emotions. What we're getting rid of are those inappropriate emotions that are preventing you from, you know, leaving your, because we've had people that were agoraphobic 
who are now going outside of their comfort zones for the mm-hmm. first time in decades. Wow. So we're getting rid of the inappropriateness is what we're doing. We're, we're not, right. we're not creating a bunch of sociopaths. We don't want to. Do that. <laughs> that's, that's not, that's not the objective. The obje- objective is to sever the connection, the neurological connection between that event. Cause one of the things that we deal with a lot of civilians, cause a lot of civilians will call up and ask, you know, well, is this just for veterans or first responders? And I always say this, I said, look, the United States, there's 11, nine to 11 million Americans with clinically diagnosed PTSD. Only 1 million, 1.1 million of those are veterans. So we don't hold the patent on trauma. And it's not the visual that's the problem. It's the emotional attachment. So if you're a child and you're exposed to a traumatic event and your reaction is fear, terror, and helpless to that event, it doesn't matter if it was you know, being beat by your dad or if it was an adult going to Afghanistan. The, the trauma is in the mind of the beholder. So I always tell civilians, I said, you cannot compare your trauma to my trauma because if I'm a 10 on mine and you're a 10 on yours, there's no difference. It's, it's equivalent as far as the emotional attachment. So did that answer your question or did I kind of go way off the rails? Maybe a little of both, but I, I think that's, <laughs> I, I appreciate you saying that because I, I, that's something for me, you know, I, I deal with anxiety and it was something that, you know, I, I've been helping the Homeland Heroes Foundation for several years. I believe in their mission to help others. Um, and even starting this podcast, it was like, well, my trauma is not as bad as someone else. So why do I deserve to get help? It's well, not I, a competition. Yeah, right. There's no competition. We just want everybody to get healthy. I don't yes. care if you're a civilian. I don't care if you're a Democrat. I don't care if you're a Republican. Matter of fact, I think if we can clear the entire United States Congress, right, <laughs> be a better country for it. Well, just to expand on what Dan said, uh, I I frame it like this. So in the military, we carry a rucksack. It's kind of got our our whole life in it, right? Usually weighs about fifty pounds. However, someone who is fifty years old has had anxiety since she was four years old. Every time a situation presents itself, she has 46 years of anxiety that she carries with her. Mm -hmm. So what we do with the emotions management process is we clear from four years old all the way to 50, like he did with you. And then that way, when a situation presents itself, you can have anxiety in the moment. Actually, it becomes excitement, but you don't have all of that pressure from all of those years of being reminded of those negative, you know, experiences that you experienced in the past. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting rid of your feelings. You're not, like he said, we're not creating sociopaths. We're just <laughs> allowing you the freedom to feel emotions in the moment. I, I, we did a training, I think it was last two weeks ago, and there was an officer on the call and he was pretty jammed up. His PSSI five score was 54 and he had a lot going on. He did not share content, but when we, what's cool about the training is you clear your stuff during the training. Mm-hmm. And as a trainer, you know, as a training director and as a trainer in this process, I have the luxury of being able to watch the process and coach the process. And so what I do is I go off screen 
And I was just, I was, he's like, how you doing doc? How is that? You know? And he's trying to get feedback from me and I'm crying, you know? So I'm like, man, this was awesome. You know, because he, he felt, you saw the relief on his face. And I knew, you know, I'd been working with him for about six months trying to get him to take this training because I know in the law enforcement, they're going through a lot right now. Yeah. You know, I, I had a conversation with a doctorate of social work in Utah, and she was telling me about all the challenges that they're facing. And I just, you know, to see that relief, the, the color come back to his face and he's smiling and he was just like, he felt so relieved that hundred pounds that he was carrying on his back was just absolutely gone. And I was just in tears and he's like, how am I doing doc? How am I doing? Are you there? Are you there? And I'm like, I don't want you to see me because I was so excited. I was, you know, just in tears because I was just so excited for him to get to that level. And what's awesome about every time we do this, it was so impactful for us to go through the process that when we help other people, we feel that feeling all over again, every time. Mm -hmm. Even the people we've trained, we hear the success stories of them, you know, working through the process. Dan can tell you a little bit more about this part, but when they tell us, they give us feedback on how they're doing. And I, you know, I cleared this person and this person, and I did this, and this is the experience. And it's just like, we still, it's like vicarious excitement, you know, instead of vicarious trauma. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the cool part is, you know, in the last episode, we talked a little bit about um, oxytocin. When you do something really good for somebody else, where you really feel like really it, it pleases you, your brain emits a chemical called oxytocin. That's a chemical reaction. So when you sit there and, and you run the process on somebody and you watch them let go of the emotion and you see the color come back, um, I'm kind of famous for like, I, I'll record some sessions. And one of the guys I, I cleared his childhood trauma and he starts yawning and, you know, Janelle alluded to the yawn. That's when the brain goes parasympathetic and it goes into the rest mode. So the fight or flight shuts off. So people get really tired. So I'm, I'm famous for sitting there in the background, casting a line and hooking the, the, the fish. Cause that's when, you know, you've got them. Once he reels them in. It's awesome. <laughs> And I'll, I'll tell him because this guy's like eyes are closed is yawning. And I'm like, I may or may not have cast a fish and hooked you as you were yawning. Cause that's when I know that you're, you're good. Um, but then you get that oxytocin release where I, I get, it's almost like an adrenaline rush, but it's a really mm-hmm. euphoric feeling to really be able to help someone, especially when you were there and you know what, what they're about to experience and their lives are about to change. Wow. So it's kind of cool. So are you ready for a nap, Alyssa? (laughs) (laughs) Usually after each podcast, I am. It's I I think um, and I know I've talked to both of you offline before and after our conversation the first time around, it was like, oh, maybe I'm an empath and doing the podcast. It's very much like I, I, I get off um, an episode of, of with someone and I'm just like, wow, I'm drained, but in such a positive way. Um, and it's, yeah, I can, I can definitely sympathize and empathize with that feeling of I'm helping this person or the fact that, you know, a lot of the veterans that we come on and interview their biggest set statement at the end of it is if this podcast at my, if my episode, if my story can resonate with one other person, I've done my job, right? I've helped someone. 
And that is something that always just kind of gets me right in the heartstrings because I'm like, that's why we're here. That's mm-hmm. what we're doing. We're trying to help others. Um, and that kind of leads me to this is to to anyone who is seeking help or hesitant to get help, whether a veteran, um, civilian, whatever, what would you say to them? I would say that this is absolutely worth you getting your life back. The only thing you have to lose is a label. That's it. Um, it's, it's painless. We don't, we don't force you to relive the events. You know, once we have that slight trigger and most, a lot of people are triggered by the time we already get to them. So we only have to go into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, and it's, it's just really powerful. Um, if you're married, uh, we would suggest that both husband and wife go together. Okay. If one person's got trauma, I guarantee you the other one does. If, if, if a combat vet has PTSD and his wife or husband has been dealing with that, there's a level of trauma there. So we would suggest both parties go together, maybe not the same coach or counselor, but you know, we've got, we're now in 17 States. So we've got counselors all over the U S now, um, your area. Yeah. Your area. I think we have three or four in New Hampshire and Massachusetts Uh area in Vermont. Um, so there's actually, there's probably five or six in the new England States. Um, so if somebody needs to be face to face with somebody, we can do our best to try to facilitate that if it's close to the, one of the peer coaches, but it's, it can be done remotely. It can be done over FaceTime. It can be done over. I just found out you can actually Snapchat video conference. So <laughs> like, I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty simple process. We work with kiddos as well. Yep. Dan has sent me some of his family members. <laughs> So uh, I've worked with almost 50 children. Um, Big thing is that they'd like to go, oh, this is stupid. I'm like, just do it anyway. You know, so (laughs) it works out pretty well. Not that I frame it that way, but it it depends on the client, what kind of relationship I have with them. Sure. But uh, the kids definitely struggle when they see their parents struggle. They know something isn't right and they shift and then they don't know how to react. Mm -hmm. So this helps them too. What's the youngest that you... Oh, great question. Oh, that is a good question. So my youngest little boy I worked with was four years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, trigger warning. Dan, yeah. you want to shut the ear mic off. He doesn't like this part, but he was when he oh, was before two Before you get started, um, yeah. I do want to make an additional discretion. We had the discretion in the beginning of every episode, but if you do have little ears or um, are are triggered by traumatic events, um, please fast forward, um, a few minutes. Um, and in post-production, I can try to put that how many minutes ahead. Thank you. So when his his mother was suffering from substance abuse and he had to be relocated to a foster home. And while he was relocated to a foster home at two years old, Uh, They used to shut him in a dark room in the basement and the older foster children used to do terrible, terrible things to him. And they found this all out through CPS and, you know, Mm -hmm. they went through all the channels and they finally found a great aunt who took the child in and he came to be in crisis. And we had a worker with him. Uh, It was right around the time I started using this process. I want to say about March. And I come in contact with him. I was doing outpatient therapy with him 
what would happen is, is he had a little shaggy dog and he would get up in the middle of the night and he really, really was terrified of the dark. Mm-hmm. He did not speak very much. It was not, you know, we played games and we talked about emotions and things like that. And I had to do a lot of play therapy with him. What would happen is he would get up and if the, the hallway light was not on, he would, he would urinate on the dog. Mm. <laughs> so, um, the great aunt asked me if there was anything I could do. And I said, actually, I do have a process. And he was one of the first individuals I worked with where uh, I didn't have them share their story. And I made everything really safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And one of the things is he had stairs that went up to the bedroom. So I had him sit on the floor as part of the tactical resiliency process. You, you would have you watch you watch the video. So what I did is I sat him on the floor. And then I sat him on the stairs and then I had him look at, imagine himself in front of the television. And I stuck a little teddy bear there and that was part of it. So he went through the process really well. He runs around in the dark now. And she told me I created a monster, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, he's doing really, really well. I mean, he had, he had very inappropriate behavior pretty much everywhere he went. Sure. Uh, If he had to ride in a dark car, he would scream. He would throw temper tantrums. I mean, he was only four years old. So, I mean, even the community mental health services don't like to put people in that young. Usually they start at five years of age, but due to his extraordinary circumstances, they decided to give us, you know, an opportunity and um, basically pay us for our services. But he's out of services now. He's thriving. He's good. He's in T-ball. He's pretty upset that COVID happened. <laughs> so I'm still talking with the great aunt. I'm still connecting with, you know, these clients to make sure that they're still good. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, he doesn't urinate on the dog anymore. So that's wonderful. <laughs> Just imagine that kid 20 years from now had he been stuck in a traumatized state. Yeah. Prison, dead. Repeating, repeating behaviors. Now he's, he's actually got a chance in life. And that's the cool part about this process is you really can give kids their lives back. Yeah, that's profound, especially, um, I don't think there's anyone, especially in the new England States. Um, cause I can speak to it personally, but there's, there's no one that doesn't know a story that's similar to that, um, in regards to drug abuse and you know, a child going into foster care because of that. So that is profound that, I mean, that everything you guys have been saying has been completely profound. And I think really speaks to the good that you're putting into the world. Well, typically the next question I get asked is what is the oldest? So this is fun. (laughs) So I I had an outpatient therapy client and uh, we were working with her granddaughter, her daughter and herself, and she was 103. Very fiery. Right. Well, when she was 86, what happened to her? Another trigger warning. Her husband died of a heart attack, like Mm. on the floor. And she's 86 years old. She needed a knee replacement at the time. She got, she has had since had her knee replaced or yeah, her knee replacement. She called the paramedics. The paramedics took um, 22 minutes to get out to her. And she knew how to do CPR, but she could not get on the ground to help her husband. So that's where that traumatic event, which is fear, terror, and helplessness comes into play. Mm -hmm. 
So I worked her through the process and she, she was golden. She, in her daughter, like she sends me these little bouquets every once in a while. Um, because you know, she was just, I think her, her daughter called her a grumpy old bag. (laughs) So, and, um, you know, she was just miserable and she was miserable for 17 years. And then she came and see me and then I learned this and I'm like, I got something for you. You know, she used to come see me when her daughter and her granddaughter received therapy, you know, because it was really traumatic for her daughter as well as granddaughter, because I mean, this guy was the light of everybody's life. He was just an amazing individual. According to the community, I I didn't meet him, so I didn't know, but but anyway, she's doing really well. She's still kicking it. She's, she Mm -hmm. turned 104 last Sunday. Wow. (laughs) And the only reason I know that is because her daughter sends me a bouquet on her mom's birthday. Mm-hmm. And she's like, we can deal with her now. You know, <laughs> well, the, the mother, you know, the 103, actually 104 year old actually lives with the daughter. Mm-hmm. And she was just a horrible person. So that's why she made, you know, but she was miserable. Yeah. You know, she was cranky and she, she just had a rough time and now she's all sunshiny and rainbows. You might have to send a few. <laughs> Do I? I might have to send a few people your way. <laughs> <laughs> Bring them. You got my phone number. <laughs> Those are really. Say, what's awesome is the challenge with the clinicians is that we have 50 minutes to do what we need to do. Mm-hmm. With the RTM protocol, with cognitive behavioral therapy, with rapid emotive behavioral therapy, with all these different therapeutic interventions, they're all great because you have 7 billion people on the planet. You have 1,438 interventions. So there's something for everyone. And that's wonderful. However, they all take longer than 50 minutes. Yes. Except for we have superstar, Dan Jarvis, who can do 22. 22. And then he can talk about the sunshine and the rainbows. Wow. Really incredible. What are some techniques that you can share with the audience, Dan and Janelle, uh, that the audience and any people that are experiencing anxieties or traumas, um, what techniques can you share with them that they can use? In the moment, I would say probably the best technique would be diaphragmatic breathing. So for example, diaphragmatic means if you ever see an infant breathe, they breathe from the belly. So as your cortisol levels go up, that's your stress hormone. So you're getting that anxiousness building up. If you can breathe really deep, like we, you can do like a four second inhale and then lower belly is expanding. And then you do a four second hold with the belly expanded. And then you do a six second exhale. And as you exhale, you're compressing your belly to your spine. You're compressing against the vagus nerve and, or that what they call that 10th cranial nerve. And that's signaling the brain to say, okay, there's enough. I don't need any more cortisol. And it'll, it can drop your cortisol levels up to 30% and then do a, a four second exhale. So it's four second inhale, four second hold, six second exhale, four second hold. And you keep repeating that until you start getting tingly because that's the oxygen hitting your system. And then you're, you'll notice uh, a drop in your anxiety. So that's a technique and then reach out to us and let us clear the cause of the anxiety. And then you don't have to worry about that. There was, there's another technique that you've shared with me. Um, and I actually completely forgot about it, but it, the, the Thor hammer, can you, can you Oh yeah, yeah. That? So for those people that are like empaths where you're feeling somebody else's energy or emotion, 
Um, our imaginations are really cool as what we can do. That whole ability to dissociate and separate. So you imagine holding the Thor of hammer and all that energy that you've absorbed that belongs to somebody else. Just imagine it just being sucked into that, that hammer and then launching it to the sun. That's one technique. Um, another technique is if you know, you know, say your mom is your trigger and she's really got you worked up. Imagine literally looking at her 30, maybe 30 yards in front of you, holding one of those big horseshoe magnets and imagine she's pulling all her energy back to her. That's a way for your body to just kind of let it go. It sounds kind of, I don't know what you want to call it. It sounds kind of frou-frou, but it is a, it is a technique that does work. You, your brain will uh, release that emotion. So it's, and that's another technique. This just reminded me too of, of, um, cause you're kind of in a way transferring energy, I guess would be another way of thinking about it. Um, in, you know, a lot of the Asia, uh, Eastern Asian cultures have the, um, uh, what's it called? Um, like the chi. And right. so that's another way I think you yeah. could. Well, I mean, cause we do have electricity running through our brain and our yeah. bodies. So there is energy. We are made of energy, which is kind of mind blowing it, you know, when you think about it, but yeah. And, and, and the ability for your subconscious to be able to release those emotions and those feelings, uh, we do, we do have that capacity. Or another one is disassociating. So like you're really anxious, you see yourself and then doing that kind of like that drone going up in the sky where you get smaller and smaller. Um, mm -hmm. That's another way of separating um, that anxiousness from the moment. So you see yourself from that 30,000 foot worldview. Yeah. So I think something else too, this is um, something I actually learned in, in class that could potentially be helpful. And, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the more professionals in this area. But um, I took a world religions class once and he talked about meditating. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, I, I've done this when I, I need to kind of like decompress or just like, you know, take away that anxiety or something. Um, but it's close your eyes and imagine that there's a candle lit in front of you in a black room and breathe in and out, but don't blow out that candle. And that is something that can kind of help center you. Yeah, that's you're you're doing subconscious work and breath work. <laughs> I would say that's, that's why meditation is effective for calming people because you are going subconscious. A lot of visualization, guided imagery. Um, Gary's probably thinking, "What did I get myself into?" <laughs> no, I actually find it very interesting, and uh, I, you know, uh, with everything that I've gone through. Um, uh, post uh, military with uh, therapy and counseling and things like that. Uh, I really, really love to hear promising uh, out of the box, um, not your average, you know, uh, ways of going about treating the individuals. And, and I found when, when we would talk about soldiers and what we went through, uh, if you, if you talk to, um, a person who's gone through some type of severe trauma, you know, uh, say a woman who, uh, had been raped and, and, uh, she needs to, uh, seek counseling to help her, you know, deal with these, uh, thoughts and the, the post-traumatic stress of that. Um, it's, it's an isolated incident. Mm -hmm. And it's 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 easy to um, target that isolated incident and uh, and uh, and 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 help work through that. Uh, 
with uh, with soldiers, a lot of times there are so many different incidents that have happened, you know, uh, over the course of, you know, three, four, five different deployments. Right. Uh, and it's it's really hard to pin down which one is, is exactly causing the most damage yeah. or in the, which one is the one that you, uh, is, you know, you have certain memories that you can't stop thinking about certain tragic events that you can't get off your minds and things that rent space in your head for, you know, for hours and hours, but, uh, you know, the underlying issues or, you know, the many, many tragic events that you went through, yeah. you know, while you were in the service. And, and that's where I, I, I find the hang up with traditional, like going and, you know, seeking counseling and, uh, you know, the psychiatrist and stuff, they want me to, you know, they want me to concentrate on one specific event and talk and work through it. And uh, it's it's I find that very difficult to do. Well, the the problem with that is when you're dealing with brain neurology, when you speak about those events in a traumatized state, you're actually making those neurological connections stronger. Right. So when you when you sever the neurological connections and the and the brain reconsolidates the memory and it separates the emotion, the more you think about that long term memory, the stronger the neurological connection gets, which is why it won't go back to a traumatized emotional state. Now you could always be re-traumatized by a different event, but then your brain has got a tool that it has a tendency to do on its own. That's part of why we call it resiliency because, you know, you, you literally, your brain will do these things at night when you sleep without you realizing you're doing it. It'll start processing it with the, with the new skills. So I can my, invitation, my invitation to you is if you want to, you know, explore some of these alternatives, just let me know. We'll connect, and then you can always share your experience. Okay. On another episode. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's really, um, it's it's it is kind of mind-boggling, especially when you've dealt with trauma. I mean, I've I was I've dealt with trauma since I was a kid. So, like, for somebody to say, you know, we can fix this, you know, it's almost like, okay, yeah, right, whatever, and. And it wasn't until my paradigm changed when I sat in front of that class in Albuquerque that I realized, holy crap, this is legit. Um, and I can't wait for Walter Reed to finish their their research study. They're not publishing until September 2021, but that should force the VA to change the way that they treat post-traumatic stress. And then all those PhDs with those big egos will have to take the research um, because Walter Reed is like the, one of the foremost research centers in the world. They'll have to take the, the findings and realize, okay, we are definitely at a place where we can fix trauma. And just imagine, I mean, cause that would make my job easier. If the VA would get everybody trained to do this and instead of doing 12 to 16 sessions of exposure, they are doing three to five per client. I mean, they could clear their backlog faster. They knew what to do with it. So, so how far have you been, how far have you gotten with um, the VA people who represent the VA? The, the oh. VA? That's a good conversation because I got into a, I'll call it a healthy discussion. Um, I spoke at an event and I, to, to a bunch of counselors that were, um, it was like a, I was invited to go speak and share about the RTM protocol and there was a VA psychologist presenting and her thing was dialectic behavioral therapy. So she had to get her dig in, you know, don't believe all the snake oil salespeople. And it just kind of ticked me off. So we had a conversation after the fact, 
And she was so condescending, like literally like, oh, no, no. What you say could not possibly exist. There's no possible way you can do that. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I will sponsor you to go get trained in Tallahassee, Florida. I'll pay for your tuition. And then she goes, oh, I, I would never in good conscience ever do something like that without evidence to support. And the VA is um, the prolonged exposure therapy is saving lives. It's the gold standard treatment for trauma. And I looked at her and I said, let me tell you something. I said, people like you are going to cause people like me to go into the peer world and I'll train veterans to do this and we'll just make you irrelevant. She really did not like that. <laughs> that's how I felt. And that's really, and that's really when we're, I'm like, do we are going hundred miles an hour peer, peer resilient. We have 50, well, not counting the Florida national guard. We have 54 peer coaches in 17 States. So we're just keeping adding them. And then it, the cool part about that is somebody calls me for help. I got a buddy who's a, he's one of my wounded warriors is in Iowa. He's a reserve police officer. I connect him with um, some folks up North in his area. And I can, I can just kind of, share the the load we can cross load and now start working with each other and we've totally ripped the profit out of the paradigm like literally we're removing profit um from the equation so like all these veterans because I, I personally don't believe a veteran or a cop or a firefighter should have to pay for treatment because they're they're getting jammed up doing what we ask them to do so that's kind of the, the model that we do. So if, if it's a veteran, first responder, active military, um, technically anybody that puts a uniform on for a purpose bigger than themselves, that's who our audience is. So we, that's why we added the nurses and the doctors with COVID, um, corrections officers, crime scene investigators, 911 dispatchers. I mean, we're getting a lot of research. We have two other studies going that are going to have um, each of them are going to be 100 cases and they'll have then three rep, two replication studies and then the initial study. So like we're, we're collecting data like crazy. And that's how, you know, Dr. Masano out at Arizona state and Dr. Corvea down in Miami, that's how we're going to put the naysayers um, on the back burner because I, I'm, I'm not a big research guy. I don't really need to see the data. I just, I know it works because I, I was on the receiving end of it, but there are people who do want that research. So I'm just, I let Mar Martha and I let, Mike and Janelle um, work on the research. I'll provide them with data, but they're they're doing all the publications. I have no interest in that. Um, but yeah, yeah, the VA will be the last organization to buy into it. They'll be, the, they'll be me too at the very end. I wish I could tell you I'm surprised. Yeah, no, right? And it's the initial training in Albuquerque was supposed to be a VA training. They did, they did private fundraising to do 45 um, VA counselors. And then somebody last second says, no, we're not doing this. No interest. And then pulled it. And that's when they are like, well, what do we do now? And that's when they just went to the local counselors and says, look, it's funded. All you got to do is show up and get trained. And that, that was the first training. It was supposed to be a VA event and the VA, um, some bureaucrat in the middle level of the management said, nope, don't want it. Don't not rocking the boat. And it never happened. So the VA will be the last organization to buy into it. We might get some luck with the, the vet centers versus the actual VA healthcare, but the the actual VA, um, they'll wait until the research gets published and then they'll probably wait another four to six years after that. So, so you can tell I'm not a big VA fan. Yeah. <laughs> it, it works. It seems like it works for some people and it works for, it doesn't work for other people. And, and I think right. that's, that's important. You know, I, I have people who swear by it and, and yeah. I went and they told me, I don't know what to tell you. 
I don't have anything that'll help you. And I think the region that you're in too. Um, All VAs are not created equal. That is, that is true. No, there's some really amazing. I mean, even Dr. Masano and Dr. Um, Corvea, they both worked for VAs in the past. But they don't anymore. So that should tell you something. That's true. I think that's a much bigger healthcare conversation than we have time for today. (laughs) That is beyond this, this scope of the conversation. Yes, absolutely. We're doing is we're collecting the evidence so that they can't ignore it. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And helping people in the most important thing. Yes. We just want them to know that there's, there's opportunities. There's different opportunities. Absolutely. I think this this has been a fantastic conversation and I want to thank you both for your service as well as your continued service helping veterans and helping your brothers and women and sisters in arms um, and, and everyone really helping others to live a better life. Um, I think that is really important in the work that you are doing. I appreciate and um, I, I'm excited to see where it goes and continue to watch this process. Yeah. We just want to help everyone, even civilians. I worked with an architect, a hairdresser, a teacher, you know, it doesn't <laughs> like I'll work with anybody. Yeah. And I think, you know, everyone, anyone listening today or to any of our episodes, please, if you are struggling, um, please reach out. You have a support system. There's people out there that care about you that really want to help you and want to see you live a happy, successful life. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dan and and Janelle for joining the Homeland Heroes Salute podcast today. This has been a huge, insightful, inspiring, impactful conversation. One that I think we continue need to continue to have in our communities. Um, Any final words of wisdom or advice to the, to our audience? It's okay to ask for help. That's one of the things that I really wish as a drill sergeant, we would have kind of driven into the mind. It's okay to not be okay. And you're not alone. Absolutely not alone. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us for the second part of this conversation with Dr. Janelle Royster and Dan Jarvis, co-founder and president of the 220 nonprofit. Again, Dan, you just want to throw in where you, where people can find you. They can send me an email directly to dan at 220.org or www.220.org or my mobile number is 863-221-6304. Oh, you're throwing the mobile number out there? <laughs> I got my mobile number on the website, so okay, I'm good with it. Mine is Dr. Royster. It's D-R-R-O-Y-S-T-E-R at 220.org. And my mobile number is 757-818-0499. Fantastic. Thank you both for joining us today. And thank you to our audience for always listening. This podcast is brought to you by the Holman Harris Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, support, volunteer, or donate, please visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at Dairy Cam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. And thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.